for an old timer at Charlotte, if you're the Charlotte faithful, you've been here every week, you look at the first word of Ecclesiastes 4, and maybe you say it with a bit of a groan, again, (laughs) again, we've been here, we've done it, this book is hard, it is uncomfortable, again. Maybe you're feeling that this morning. Ecclesiastes has been prodding us, pushing us up to the window of life, And again and again and again showing us that life under the sun is meaningless. And maybe you almost feels that you've been prodded so many times, you're bruised in the back and your face is up against the window and you cannot face again. Well, maybe part of the reason for that is some of the things we've looked at are a bit foreign to you. You find it hard to engage. You know, this man went after wisdom. Maybe you've not done that. You're happy not being able to do the cryptic crossword in the back of the times. You've never really pursued wisdom. Maybe you've never really pursued pleasure. I think I'm Scottish. This is as pleasurable as it gets. It doesn't get any more than this. And you've never done that. Maybe you've never pursued sex. Porn or promiscuity has never been your battle. And so looking at these things seems a bit, it's a bit distant. Maybe money. You've never pursued money. Uh, you're quite happy, content with where your family's at in terms of your finances. And it's all these Ecclesiastes stuff, just things a little bit far removed. Well, this morning, it's a little bit more raw, I think. Because we're confronted with, as again he looks at what is under the sun and plays this game of catchphrase where he says what he sees. He sees loneliness. That is the recurring drumbeat of Ecclesiastes 4. Life under the sun is a lonely life. And whereas we may not all have pursued sex or money or pleasure or possessions, all of us at some stage or other have known the loneliness of life under the sun. Maybe it's the recently bereaved widower. Maybe it's the long-term single. Maybe it's the Christian who is struggling with same-sex desires who is trying to live a, a long life of faithfulness to Jesus. Maybe it's the single mother. Maybe it's the divorcee. Maybe it's a university fresher. Maybe it's the traveling businessman. But we all know what it is to be lonely. And in Ecclesiastes 4, he again says, life under the sun and its loneliness is one of the things that makes life meaningless. So we're going to read Ecclesiastes 4, and we're going to read the start of chapter 5, as we see this spectrum of friendlessness, loneliness, isolation. This is God's word. Ecclesiastes 4, again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed. They have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, who's not yet seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all labor and all achievement sprang from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. A fool folds his hands and ruins himself. 
better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to all his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. A miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can't help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, this king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with this successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so does speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have already been shown the glory of your Son as on top of that mountain he was transformed into the glory like a flash of lightning. And we have heard your voice saying, listen to him. So we pray this morning that we would behold his glory and listen to his voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start off then again by allowing the teacher in Ecclesiastes to prod us from behind and press our faces up against the glass of life. Let's examine this lonely life under the sun. He takes us through a spectrum of four things. Let's run through them quickly. Number one, lonely life under the sun is characterized first by no comforters and only oppressors. Do you see that in verse 1? I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter 
power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. I don't know if you've ever felt that. Many tears. No one to comfort you. It may be that you are surrounded by loads of people, but there's still no one to comfort you. Remember the story of Job? He had friends, but he had no comforters. Some of you may know what it is to be in the isolation of crying and crying and crying with no one and nothing that can bring any comfort. Do you see the stark conclusion that he draws in verse 2? Better dead. That's, that's a punch, isn't it? Better dead. In fact, verse 3, better than both to have never have lived. Better is the unborn who has never had to experience either the oppression or the lack of a comforter. Life is lonely under the sun. No comforters, only oppressors. See the second thing? No companions, only competitors. Verse 4. I saw that all labor and all achievements sprang from what? So he's not just looking at at the fact that people pursue things, but he sees through them to their very heart. He looks at the motive behind everything that humanity does. And what does he say it is? At the root of it all, envy. What drives everything that humanity is doing, he says, is a selfish motive. You ever felt that? You know, as you meet with people that you socialize with, uh, there is the constant comparisons that go on, isn't there, between their house and your house, between the car that they arrive in and the car that you arrive in, between the meal that they cook you and the meal that you tried to cook them, between the party that they threw for their kids and the party that you threw for your kids, the clothes that they are wearing and the clothes that you are wearing, to the point that when you spend time with these people, it is not an enjoyable experience, but it is one of envy. Experience that? There's the isolation of humanity. Again, you are in a group, but you are isolated because of this motive of selfishness. Envy has never produced a companion. It only means that companions become competitors and even relatives can become rivals. Life is lonely under the sun, isn't it? Third thing, no contentment, only toil. Verse 7, again, I saw something meaningless. There was a man all alone, neither son nor brother. See how it's described? There was no end to his toil. He grafted, he worked hard. No end to his toil, but no end of satisfaction, no end of contentment. But actually, that's not even the issue. No No end to his toil, no end of his contentment, but no one to share it with. The businessman who's working and working and working, and he suddenly asks the question, for whom am I toiling? I'm living as if there is someone to enjoy this with or someone to leave this to. But the long hours in the office have meant that there's nothing but isolation. No contentment, only toil, all alone. Fourth, not quickly broken, 
but quickly forgotten. In verse 9, seems to be a glimmer of hope, doesn't it? Seems that here's a bit of light in Ecclesiastes. Here's maybe an answer to our loneliness. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. But actually, I think what this is doing is serving to show the struggle of loneliness even more. Where's the emphasis? But pity the man who has no one. That's the point of this passage. It is saying that one is better, uh, two is better than one and three is better than two, but all to show us that loneliness is hard. He uses the word better. Do you remember where better has also been used in this passage? Better to be dead. That's the kind of better that it means to have two or three. Sure, two is better than one, three is better than two, but actually, it's not an answer, it's only a consolation. Life is lonely under the sun. We can see that that's, that's the context of this passage when you read the next little story from verse 13. You see the story of this young king. Young king, he comes either from prison or from poverty. And he succeeds this old king who'd stopped taking advice. And look how popular he is. Verse 15. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth. Now do the math. If two is better than one and three is better than two, all is better than three, isn't it? I think. Again, he says in verse 16, there was no end to all the people. Two better than one, three better than two, all better than three. What's the conclusion at the end of verse 16? But those who came later were not pleased with their successor. This too was meaningless. Two better than one, three better than two, all better than three, but actually all meaningless. Life is lonely under the sun. Now why does the writer to the Ecclesiastes push us up to see this? He's not actually just uh, telling us brute facts about humanity on this earth. He's actually showing us that this is a reminder of a judgment imposed by God. This is life under the sun after man's rebellion against God. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden? Adam is all alone. And what does God say? It is not good that man should be alone. So he provides a helper in Eve. And there is this wonderful betterness, a perfection about that. But when Adam and Eve fall, when they rebel against God, the effects of God's judgment are seen very quickly. In that rather than Eve wanting to be united to her husband, she desires to have her husband. All of a sudden there is this envious motive in both of their hearts that is going to drive a wedge between humanity. And that envy did not die with Adam and Eve's death, but it spread to all their descendants. So that life is lonely under the sun. It's a hard message, isn't it? But it's an experience that I would guess all of us can empathize with. Four times in this chapter. Verse 4, meaningless. Verse 7, meaningless. Verse 8, meaningless. Verse 16, meaningless. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, we've read chapter 5. 
We've read the start of chapter 5 because he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And those of you who have been here week after week and you're feeling the again, one of your thoughts has been, well, this is true for the non-Christian who just lives life under the sun. But for the Christian, we can raise our eyes to the God who is in heaven and find that there is comfort in the God who says, comfort, comfort my people. That there is a companion who says, I can stick closer even than a brother. That there can be contentment for those who can find contentment in Christ in any and every circumstance. And there is one who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And you think we're getting there because we're getting to the house of God in chapter 5. I'm afraid not, actually. Because although so far in Ecclesiastes he has gone into the pubs and he has gone into the brothels and he has gone into the universities and he has gone into the houses and said, this is meaningless. Do you know the punch of chapter 5 is that when we're salivating over an answer, he enters the church and he says, this too is meaningless. See that at the end of verse 7, start of verse 7 of chapter 5. He says, much dreaming and many words are meaningless. He comes into the church and rather than finding people who are living life to the full, he finds people who are living a life of fools. See that repeated three times in verse 1, fools. In verse 3, fools. In verse 4, fools. He looks at this church and their worship of God, and he says, you're fools. It's tragic. Because although this God who is in heaven should be the very thing that brings meaning to everything they do, they've emptied it of its meaning. They take the one thing that breaks through the the under-the-sun perspective And they have reduced it to being an under-the-sun activity. It's as if they have taken the God who is in heaven and dragged him down to be beneath the sun. And so the writer to the Ecclesiastes looks at them and says, meaningless. Your worship, your time spent together is meaningless. It's not sacrifice, it's sinful. It's not faithful, it's foolish. Now why is this? What is wrong with what they are doing? Well, try and find the repeated phrases in these verses. Read from chapter 5, verse 1. What are the repeated ideas? Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than offer the sacrifices of fools who do not do what they do wrong. You see what's going on? Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, you are on earth, so let your words be few. As dreams come when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. What's the problem with their worship that's leaving it meaningless? You notice it? They talk too much. Now you're looking at me saying, you talk too much. But you see their problem? Many words. They talk too much. They make quick promises to God and they are slow to fulfill them. 
They've dragged God down from being the God of heaven just to be another under-the-sun person so that they talk at him rather than listen to him. He's now become an equal so that we can be the ones who initiate conversation and dominate conversation rather than listening to him. See, the very thing that ought to bring meaning to everything else in life, they drag him from above the sun to under the sun. And so everything that they do is meaningless. I wonder if that characterizes the way that we have come to church this morning. I wonder if that characterizes the way that we think of God. That we're too quick to speak and too slow to listen. I think one of the ways we do this is when we sing. Do you ever think about what you're singing in church? I sometimes find myself listening to the radio in the car and I'm singing along every single lyric that is going on. And then if someone's asked me, what is that song about? I don't have a Scooby-Doo. I, I don't know. These just words just drift over me and I'm singing them and I, I don't know what it's about. You ever felt that in church? We're so quick to sing. And in these songs, we are saying marvelous but profound things and even making pretty serious promises to God. And if they're just drifting over us, do you see the emotions of God in the passage? He says, I take no pleasure in that. In fact, verse 6, it makes me angry because you're too quick to speak. Do you know what you sang last week at Charlotte Chapel? This is interesting, looking back at what we sang last week. We sang this. Find rest, my soul, in God alone amidst the world's temptations. When evil seeks to take a hold, I'll cling to my salvation. You sang that last week. How have you done in this past week? Amid the world's temptations. Have you clung to Christ alone? Or did you just sing that like you were singing Beyonce or One Direction? What about this? Though riches come and riches go, don't set your heart upon them. Have you set your heart upon riches this week? Last week, you made a vow to God. You promised God that you wouldn't. We're quick to speak, aren't we? We said we'll set our gaze on God alone and trust in him completely. Has your gaze been on God alone this week? Even in this service this morning, we sang the great hymn, Final Cross. Lord, for ourselves, in living power, remake us. Self on the cross and Christ upon the throne. You made a promise when you were singing that. To crucify self and exalt Christ. To die to yourself. Did you sing that with a seriousness? Or as if you've dragged God below the sun and he's just a mate that you can do whatever. It's hard, isn't it? The way you listen to someone shows how much you respect them. How you speak to someone tells how much you respect them. And often the way we come to church and the way we sing songs and the way we conduct ourselves shows that actually we are not treating God as the God who is in heaven, but we have relegated him to just another below-the-sun activity. So we sing as if we were singing a football match and we listen to the sermon as if we were listening to some geezer on the radio. 
meaningless. Might as well have stayed at home as God is angered and takes no pleasure in our worship. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything from pub to brothel to uni to home, even to some churches, everything is meaningless. Too quick to speak. Remember that bus campaign? Try praying. Great. It's good to pray. I've never seen a bus campaign that says try listening. We hear of, you know, we do 24 hours of prayer. Rarely you hear of a church doing 24 hours of listening to God's word speaking. Because we have an overestimated view of ourselves and underestimated view of the God of heaven. He says, meaningless. So what is the antidote? What is the thing that can bring meaning to all this meaninglessness? What is going to transfer our time together this morning from meaningless to meaningful and even glorious? Chapter 5, verse 2, halfway through. God is in heaven and you're on earth. Then therefore, at the end of verse 7, therefore... Stand in awe of God. The antidote to our superficial singing, the antidote to our loneliness, is to stand in awe of God. To raise our eyes from this beneath the sun perspective and to gaze at the God of heaven and not to speak, but to stand. Not to be a fool, but to fear. That's the word that's used here. Stand in awe. Fear God. You know, there's a generation who often use the word to describe a Christian as being a God-fearing man or a God-fearing woman. Do you know what? It does us a disservice that we have lost that phrase. Because godliness in the Bible stems from a fear of God. Now there are two types of fear in the Bible. There is a right fear for someone who is not a Christian. A fear of God's punishment for their sin. A fear that they will meet God's righteous anger. And if you're not a Christian and you do not have that fear, the Bible calls you a fool. But there is another fear that is true for the Christian. They do not fear anymore God's condemnation, but they do have a fear that stems from understanding who and what and where God is, that holds him in his right place as awesome and glorious and as majestic. How big is your God? Are you God-fearing? Stand in awe of God. The glorious thing in Ecclesiastes 5 is that there is this presumption that God exists, that he can be approached, and that he does speak. He's there. And the cry is to stand in awe of him and listen. The God of heaven does have, in verse 1, a house on earth. 
That is in the Old Testament before Jesus, where God's presence dwelt in a place, a house. But you know what? When Jesus came, the presence of the God of heaven was no longer in a house, but in a man. In his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what the writer of the Ecclesiastes says to us? Stand in awe of Jesus. How big is your Jesus? Do you fear, revere him this morning? We work very quick, aren't we, to think of Jesus as a baby in the manger. And we forget that even as a baby, the shepherds bowed down and they worshipped him. We're very quick to think of Jesus as teaching his disciples. We're slower to remember that they were terrified by him as he calmed the storm. We're very quick to remember that people were amazed at his teaching. We're slow to remember that it pierced people to the heart to the point where they were tremendously uncomfortable. We're very quick to remember the Jesus who welcomed little babies. How slow are we to remember the Jesus who just by his very presence made demons shriek in terror. We're quick to remember the cross of our Lord Jesus as the place where God's love was displayed. We forget that it is an awesome picture of his justice, that this is what condemnation for sinners looks like. We're quick to look at his cross in amazement. We're slow to remember that even when he hung on the cross, what did one of the criminals say to his friends? Don't you fear God? We're slow to remember that when that centurion beheld the crucified Jesus, what did he say? Surely this man is the son of God. Quick to remember his resurrection, that it brings life. Slow to remember that it establishes his position as judge of all the earth. Quick to remember his ascension, that it means that he is the one who brings our prayers to the Father. We are slow to remember that when John met the resurrected Jesus, how did he react? He fell on his face as though dead. How big is your Jesus? Do you stand in awe of him or just some vague appreciation of him? Stand in awe of God. What you fear will determine how you live. What you hold as awesome will determine how you live. And if what you fear and what you gawk at in awe is the pleasures or the sex or the money or the things of this world, then Jesus and God will very soon just become one thing among many, maybe even lost in the crowds. So the message of Ecclesiastes is stand in awe of God. Remember his bigness, his glory, his majesty to redeem an old word that he is awful. Maybe you are the, uh, the single that we chatted about at the start of the service, the widower, the single mother, the divorcee, the, uh, the traveling businessman, the fresher. 
Do you know, there is great news for you in the gospel. That God is the God who comforts us when there is no one else to comfort. He is the one who brings the companionship that no one else can. That he is lavish enough in his grace to bring contentment. That he does say, I will never leave you or forsake you. But even if you are that single person, your focus must not be on what can God can give you, but it must be on God himself. Not to stand in awe of God for his benefits, but to stand in awe of God for his character. How big is your God? Do you stand in awe of him? What's uh, the old hymn? Uh, Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Remember the lines? Look full in his wonderful face. The things of life will what? Grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What is the antidote to all the things of this world vying for our attention? It is to stand in awe of King Jesus. It's what we need. It's what we need to pray for as a church. That he is not just some person under the sun like anything else, but he is the God of heaven who demands our total commitment. Therefore, stand in awe of God. Let's bow our heads. I want to read some lines of an old hymn. Let them help bed this truth of God's awesome fearfulness. The old hymn says, Before Jehovah's awful throne, ye nations bow with sacred joy. Know that the Lord is God alone. He can create and he destroy. He can create and he destroy. His sovereign power without our aid made us of clay and formed us men. And when like wandering sheep we strayed, he brought us to his fold again. He brought us to his fold again. We are his people. We are his care. Our souls and all our mortal frame. What lasting honor shall we rear? Almighty maker to thy name. Almighty maker to thy name. Lord, we pray this morning. Teach us, your church, to fear you. Your grace is not always amazing to us. Your holiness is not always apparent to us. We're slow to hate our sin. We're slow to delight in your righteousness. We fear other things. We stand in awe of other things. We pray, grant to us to stand in awe of you and to worship you in spirit and in truth rather than to offer the worship of fools. We want to delight in this fear. We want to treasure your awesomeness and we want to pass it to the next generation. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.